what does it mean to be a Christian? And to help us out, we want to look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. If you are able, if you have the word of God, you can stand for God's word, for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 5, the word of the Lord says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we, lo- that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whoever, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who it is that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, and the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has, been cons- uh, he has been born concerning his son. He has born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has bore concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is the life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that at one should pray for. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. You may be seated. Again, the question that's on our minds this morning is, What does it mean for us to be Christians? And I'm assuming that we all here are in Jesus Christ, that we all have repented of our sins, turned from our sins, and placed our faith alone in Jesus Christ. So I'm assuming that you are of the faith. So what does it mean to be of the faith? But if you are not of the faith, if you are not saved, If you have not bowed your knee to Christ, 
if you have not repented of your sins, and if you don't have eternal life in the eternal word, then friends, you've come to the right service because this is what it means to be a Christian. I just have three distinctive marks of what it means for us to be a Christian. The first one, a distinctive faith. A distinctive faith. Number two, a distinctive life. A distinctive life. And number three, a distinctive love. A distinctive love. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's to mean to have a distinctive life. Our faith, a distinctive life, and a distinctive love. A faith that is different. A love that is different and a life that is different. Let's consider the first point. A distinctive faith. That's what it means, first and foremost, to be a Christian. Consider with me what verse 1 says. John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Saints, we live in a world where everyone wants to know others' opinions on certain things. From CNN to Fox News where they debate how well or how poor our current president is doing. To ESPN where various sports analysts give their opinion on various sports teams and players. To your own family and friends who ask your opinion on gay marriage or abortion. We all want to know what others are thinking. But friends, in the final analysis, all that really matters is not your opinion on the recent trade in the NBA. Not your opinions on how well or how poor the president is doing. But in the final analysis, all that really matters is your opinion on this one simple question. Who do you say Jesus is? That's what really matters in this life and the next. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? To the atheists, Jesus was just a good moralist. One who taught many good things and how we are to live as better citizens. To the Muslim, Jesus was just another great prophet and a long line of prophets. To the Jews, Jesus was simply a great teacher. To the Mormons, Jesus lived a perfect life who was elevated to the status of divinity. To Jehovah Witnesses, Jesus and Satan are spiritual brothers. To the average churchgoer who knows nothing about sound doctrine and theology, Jesus is merely their best friend. Friends, who do you say Jesus is? Is your opinion alike to those of the Mormons? Maybe those of the atheists whose Christ is simply a good moralist, someone who are to follow? Or maybe your opinion of Jesus is like those of the average churchgoer, that Jesus is your best friend, that he's your homeboy. Or is your opinion one like John's in verse 1? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And this is a point that John has been making this entire letter. He said in chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, 
Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. He says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. In verse 15 of that same chapter, John says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. If there's anything that John is trying to get crystal clear to his readers, is this one truth, that Jesus is God who became man to save his people. That's what John has been trying to get through, that Jesus is God, truly God, he's truly man, and he is the Messiah for his people. Friends, that simple message is at the heart of, of the Christian message. You don't have a Christian message without God becoming flesh to save mankind. That's the Christian message, but also, saints, that is an essential truth of the Christian faith. That is an essential truth, a top-shelf doctrine of the Christian faith. You see, friends, the Christian faith is not merely a faith without a content. The Christian faith is not merely faith without content. When we say we have faith alone, that faith alone is not to be divorced from a person. We don't have faith merely to have faith. But we have faith in an individual. We have faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Praise God for justification by faith alone. But friends, that faith is to be directed towards Jesus Christ. You have faith in Christ. He is the ark. He is the anchor. He is the sum and substance of the Christian message. You take out Christ, then how and why are we to have faith? We are saved by faith alone apart from any works, in Jesus Christ alone, His perfect work. But friends, if you have an improper view of Jesus Christ, if you have a view of Christ that's likened to the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, to the Muslims, to the average churchgoer, if your view of Jesus Christ is like that, then can that faith that you have really save you? You can claim faith alone all you want, but if your faith is not directed to a proper view of Jesus Christ, then your faith is worthless. If you don't believe that Jesus is truly God who became truly man and is the Messiah of his people, then your faith is no faith at all. You're just like the atheists or just like those who say, I'll pray for you. I remember a Muslim telling me, I'm going to pray for you. Who are you going to pray to? You're praying to a false god. There is no God. It is Jesus Christ. Hear me now. It is Jesus Christ and him alone that gives our faith value. That is why we can say we have faith alone. That is why faith alone saves. Because that faith is attached to 
Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ that gives value to our faith. So it doesn't matter what we believe concerning Jesus Christ. Well, with regard to our salvation, which is the most important thing in this world, is it not? Eternity itself, having a right understanding of who Christ is, is of utmost importance. If you deny that Jesus is God, then you're not a Christian. If you deny that Jesus is not man, then you're not a Christian. If you deny that Jesus is not the Messiah, then you're not a Christian. But let me take it a step further. If you deny that Jesus was was not truly born of a virgin, you're not a Christian. If you deny that Jesus died on the cross, that he bodily rose from the dead, or if he's returning, then you're not a Christian. Simple as that. Now you might say, well, that seems like a lot of stuff that I need to know in order to be a Christian. And it is a lot of things you need to know, is it not? You might say, well, why can't I just believe that Jesus died for me and go to church and live my life? What's wrong with that? Why can't I just believe in this or that? And friends, that is the Achilles heel of the Christian church today. This this doctrinal minimalism, this believing as little doctrine as possible just so I can get to heaven, that is the Achilles heel of the church. Make the gospel as simple as you can. The gospel is simple, yes, indeed. But the gospel is also deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Friends, we are not to be those who just say, well, why can't I just learn simply this or learn simply that and then go to heaven? Because that's not what Jesus commands. He says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We'd have a, we've done a great job in a church of loving, the, loving Christ with all of our soul, have we not? And we had done a wonderful job of loving Christ with all of our hearts, but we have failed in loving Christ with all of our mind. Friends, the Christian life is not a life that's mindless. But our mind is to be engaged. Friends, we are not merely to have an emotional embrace of God, but also an intellectual awareness of who God is. In order to to rightly worship Jesus Christ, you must have a correct view of Jesus Christ. That is why we as a church believe in the regulative principle of worship. That the word of God alone dictates and informs how we are to worship God. From the preaching, to the singing, to the praying, to the communion, to the baptism. The word of God informs us how we are to worship and approach God. That is why in this church... You don't hear loud guitar solos. You don't hear loud drum solos. You don't see people running back and forth and waving a flag and blowing whistles. That is why right now when I'm preaching, there's not someone behind me playing the organ or playing the piano so they can put you in some sort of a trance to disengage your mind from what I'm actually saying. We want your mind to be fully aware and fully in control of not only what the preacher is saying, but what you are singing. The mind is to dictate the emotions in the heart. And the more you know about your God, the more you'll be able to sing louder to him, the more you'll be able to listen carefully 
Friends, we are not to detach the mind from our Christian life. Doctrine matters. Simple as that. Theology matters. And I think this truth comes to us at different times in our Christian life. Uh, Praise God for me. When Christ saved me, it began early. That I understood that doctrine matters. And and maybe that's because of the way I, I was raised. The church that I came out of. But I learned from the very get-go that it matters what you believe. That moment when the lights get switched on and you realize that truth really matters. That what people believe really matters. How people expound and exegete the scriptures really matters. Not every preacher should be a preacher. And not every church should be a church. The moment when you realize that doctrine is not for the rare few. It's not for merely those who have PhDs, those who are seminary students. But it's for all of God's people. Now, friends, don't misinterpret me. Christianity is much more than doctrine. But it's not less than doctrine. As Christians, there are many things that we can disagree on. Many things we can disagree on. But Jesus Christ and who he is... It's simply not one we can budge on. It's not one that we can put to the side. But it is one who we are to stand on. Now, John, in closing at this point, gives us the wonderful promise if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe that Jesus is God, if we believe that Jesus is truly man, and that he is the Savior of mankind, hear what he says in verse 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ and Him alone, John, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that you have overcome the world, that you are a conqueror in Jesus Christ. That the world, the flesh, and the devil has nothing on you. But it is your faith that will carry you all the way till you see the one who you have faith in now face to face until you see Jesus Christ. Saints, this is the first mark of one who's truly of the faith. A true Christian is first and foremost marked by a distinctive faith. A distinctive faith that says Jesus is God. And is truly man and is my Savior. Let's consider the second point, and that is a distinctive life. A distinctive life. Just as the Christian is to be marked by a distinctive faith, we also are to be marked by a distinctive life. Just as we live in a day where others want to know others' opinions on certain things, people also want to live under a certain law. People want to live under a certain rule of government from Republicans who want to uphold the Constitution. And Ray, I hope I'm saying this right. I'm not much of a political person. While Democrats try to modify and reform the laws that this nation has built on to others who don't feel that we need to be ruled by various laws, but mainly the universal law of love. And this debate over how and who we are to be governed by, goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden. 
It was Adam. When he sinned against God, at that moment declared that he no longer wanted to live under God's law. The moment Adam sinned against God, he declared that I no longer want to live under God's sovereign hand, but I want to be my own ruler. I want to live under my own law. He wanted to take full control of his own life and not have to live under God's sovereign hand. But friends, this is not how the Christian is to live their life. We aren't to be governed by ourselves. But we are to live distinctive lives by obeying God's law. That is how we are to live distinctive lives, by obeying God's holy law. Consider with me what John says in verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God, and hear what he says here, and obey his commandments, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, for his commandments are not burdensome. Friends, what is one of the distinguishing marks of one who claims to be a Christian? Well, John says it's love for God and love for obeying his commandments. To those of you who claim to love God, and many of us claim to love God, the question I have for you this morning is, what's your view of God's law? to those who claim that you are sold out for Jesus Christ, what's your opinion on the law of Christ? I think what so many Christians get wrong is merely loving the God who saves and paying no mind to the God who rules. Saints, the same God who saved us is the same God who gave us His law. The same God who gave His Son is the same God who gave the law to Moses. The God of grace is also the God of holiness, the God of justice, the God of righteousness. And at times, we Christians can emphasize grace, grace, grace so much. We can emphasize the gospel and its saving power so much to where we truncate and we lose how we are to live as Christians. That again is another Achilles heel of the church today. Praise God for the message of the gospel. And every one of us needs to be reminded of the grace and forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Every single day we are to remind ourselves and be thankful that the Father sent His Son to redeem us out of the slave market of sin, but we also need to live as someone who's been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Since we believe that we have been forgiven in Christ, we are to live as one who's been forgiven in Jesus Christ. And saints, the law of God helps us live such holy lives. This is what theologians have called the third use of the law, where the law for the believer is no longer a terror or a fear, but It is a delight and a roadmap to holy living. The Christian life, yes, begins with the gospel. And then it's lived out by obeying God's law. We begin with the gospel and we live out the gospel by obeying God's law. 
The law for the believer is our protector and guides us to righteous living. One theologian has said, the Ten Commandments form the sphere of our sanctification. They are the railroad tracks upon which the Spirit of God moves the believer along. And they are the guiding pathway of the righteous. If you want to think of your life, your Christian life as a train, it is the law of God that are the tracks. And the Holy Spirit is the one that helps you move along this Christian life. In other words, the law of God helps us not drive in the wrong direction. The law of God helps us drive not in the wrong direction. Now, I need to make this one thing clear. The law to the believer is not a ladder that helps us climb to heaven. The law for the believer is not a ladder that helps us climb to heaven. The law does not save you. The law for the believer does that have no power to save you. As Christians, we are freed from the law's curse. The law does not condemn the Christian, but rather the law regulates and guides the Christian as they move throughout this world. We obey God's law simply not to earn our way to heaven, but to guide us to holy living. We've been freed from the law in order to serve God the right way. And friends, this type of teaching is so foreign in many churches today. Many churches in Bakersfield, popular churches that is, are not teaching this aspect of the Christian life. Because churches orientate their ministry around gospel-driven and gospel-centered life. Everything now is gospel this and gospel that. Gospel tracks, gospel music. Gospel food, gospel fellowship. We even have now the gospel coalition, a big network of individuals and churches. Everything in the church is gospel. Praise God for that. And while many people want to live a gospel-centered life, the gospel-driven life is expressed and lived out through God's commandments. The gospel-driven life is expressed and lived out through God's commandments. You can't have the gospel without having the law for the believer. The Christian life is not a gospel-centered life without a knowledge of and obedience to God's law. You're not living a gospel-centered life if you say, I don't love God's law. It just doesn't work. We need to be balanced in our talk of the gospel because for the believer, the law complements the gospel. They go hand in hand. The gospel tells us who we are in Christ and the law tells us how we are to live since we are in Christ. Ask anyone. You're a Christian, yes. Well, then how are you to live? Where do you go? There are not laws that we are to make up in our own minds of how we are to live as Christians, but God regulates. Just as you parents regulate and guide how your children is to live. The Father regulates his children on how we are to live in this world. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. He says in Romans 7.22, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The psalmist says in chapter 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law! 
It is my meditation all the day, all throughout the Bible. The constant attitude of the believer toward God's law is delight. It's joy. It's sweet honey for the soul. And here in our verses, John tells us in verse 3, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, honestly, honestly, Christian, how many of you can amen that statement? None of us can. Because at times, the law of God can be a burden to us. And it's only a burden to us when we replace the true source of happiness, which is God, with lesser satisfactory things, our sin. Honestly, can you say within your heart that God's commands are not burdensome? Yes, we can confess it with our lips, but friends, it needs to be tattooed and impressed and branded upon our hearts and minds. It's not a bad thing to be holy and righteous. It's not a bad thing to say no to that sin when that sin is saying, indulge me. Please me, please. It's not a bad thing to say no to worldliness and yes to righteousness. It's not a bad thing not to do the one thing that your flesh wants you to do. After all, we are called to live lives that are different from this world, from the world. And saints, Christ's reputation, hear me now, Christ's reputation is on the line simply by the way you live. Do you do know that, right? That Christ's reputation is on the line simply by the way you live. How can I say that? Because you bear his name. You're a Christian, right? You bear the name of Christ, and each time you do not act like a Christian, then you are ruining the reputation of Jesus Christ. Just as my father, I remember one time we had some sort of church program, and I was acting a fool. I was in the church program, and my father, he wasn't there, but my brother told on me, and my father told me, son, you're a rug now. And rug now men don't act that way. Rug now men don't do that. And when you act that way, you are reflecting me. And you're reflecting your mother. And you're reflecting this whole family. Same thing with Christianity. You act in an improper way. Then you are doing disservice to not only Jesus Christ, but to your brothers and sisters of the church, but those who are dying of the faith and those who have died of the faith. Friends, we are to represent Christ in the right way, and the way that we do that is by obeying his law. Remember, friends, that sin is not just transgressing God's law, but it's also a lack of conformity. Not doing what he requires, that's also sin. Not, not conforming to God's law is a sin that we all need to be aware of. To summarize this point, the Christian is to be marked by obeying God's law. Again, not to earn our salvation, but out of thankfulness to God. We are to obey God's holy law. And friends, last thing, one of the great things about obeying God's law is we never do it right. 
And it's always driving us back to Jesus Christ, the perfect law giver and the perfect law keeper. Let's now consider the last point, and that is a distinctive love. Just as the Christian is to be marked by a distinctive faith, a distinctive life, we also are to be marked by a distinctive love. And of all the things that John has been teaching us in this letter, love is at the top of his concerns. He says in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Now what John is getting at is this. Our love for our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ means that we are to care for their spiritual well-being. In fact, that's one of the responsibilities that you have as church members. It is to guard and protect the spiritual souls of others. That is what members are to do in the church. That is to guard others from false teaching and false gospels. And this relationship that John is exhorting us to is a relationship that goes beyond what we have in common as far as our favorite sports teams. What we have in common as far as our favorite movies, the favorite things we like to eat. It goes beyond just simply asking, how is your work doing? It goes beyond just asking, how are your kids doing? But it's asking, how is your spiritual life doing? Friends, one of the ways you know that I love you the most as a minister is by what I teach you. Since I teach you truth, that should tell you that I care about the most important thing in this world, and that is your soul. I don't want you to go to hell, but I want you to live this life, Coram Deo, in the face of God. In fact, oh, and this, saints, this type of love only happens through an intentional and sacrificial type of love. Saints, ask yourselves, when was the last time you invited someone in this church for lunch or to your home? When was the last time you text or called someone from this church and asked, how are you doing in your Christian life? Even if it's, hey, brother, is there anything I can pray with you with? How much time do you give to others after service is done, or do you just simply run away? And that is one of the biggest ways you can show that you love others, by simply giving five or ten minutes of your time since time to us is the most valuable thing, do you ask when you are talking to others, how are you doing in your Christian life? Or is your conversation merely orientated around job and money and friends and family and movies and all that mundane things? One preacher said, a conversation without Jesus Christ is no conversation at all. Now, yes, that can be taken to an extreme, but it's not less in a conversation. We need to have Jesus Christ at the center of our conversation that some way or another our conversation is to lead to the cross. And friends, I'm not saying that this is to be law, but the message that you are hearing this morning is a message that the prophets long to hear. The prophets that Isaiah and Moses and David longed to hear of the mysteries of the incarnation, the mysteries of the gospel. And what do we do after service? We talk about work. 
We talk about movies and we talk about how our family's doing. When you hear the message that saints long to hear of, friends, we are to be more cautious of our words and more cautious of what we are saying and the conversations we are having. One of the ways we show our love for others is by caring for other spiritual souls. And saints, since we are commanded to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not look for Christians outside of our four walls to love. Don't go on Facebook, get on a Christian group and start making friends, and you don't have and you have not made one friend in the church. Don't look for those Christians, but start here. This is what the Christian life is all about. Love for God means love for our brothers and sisters. John says in verse 21 of chapter 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I've been saying this entire series, but we're not simply commanded to tolerate our brother and sister. I don't care who gets on your nerves. Christ does not call us only to love those who are easy to love. Like I said last week, there are some Christians who are just the hardest to love. But in you loving those hard Christians, it's teaching you something about the love of Christ and how you are to conform more into the image of your Savior. This is what it means to be a Christian, friends. Love for God means that you love his children. And friends, this is a package deal. You can't have one without the other. You can't love God without loving God's children. If you truly love God, Loving your brothers and sisters in Christ confirms your claim to love God. You may not know all the ins and outs of theology, or rather, you might know all the ins and outs of theology and doctrine. You might have a Spurgeon-like library. You might have all the books and know all the things concerning doctrine. But friends, if you have not loved, what have you really learned about the Christian faith? Paul says, without love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. J.C. Ryle says, where there is no Christ-like love, there is no grace, no work of the Spirit, and no reality in our religion. What is, what is the Christian life if you don't have love? Friends, the question that I leave you with, and the question I have for you closing this point, is do you stand out as a Christian by your ability to love? Do you stand out as a Christian by your ability to love? Or do you stand out as a Christian by your ability to think, by simply what you know? Friends, I've met some of the smartest theologians in the entire world. But if they do not approach me with a Christ-like love, then what have they really learned? How smart are they really? In closing, friends, these are the distinguishing marks of the Christian faith. A distinctive faith, a distinctive life, and a distinctive love. Now, I know much of what is said and much of what I said this morning is indeed challenging. And to the Christian who doubts whether or not they can live in such a way that mirrors John, maybe you say, well, I got the faith down. But man, that law-keeping and that loving thing, that's, that's so hard for me. I always fell in those areas. Saints, remember the encouragement that John gives us in chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. Listen to what he says. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for for his name's sake. 
I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Here John meets every spiritual person from the most mature of the faith to the one who's just starting off in the faith to the one who's in the middle who really can't see the finish line and who can't see the starting line to those mature ones keep going to those ones who are in the middle, who are not newly Christians and not old Christians, and to those ones who are newly Christians, you are strong. Congregation, you are strong. You can do this. In spite of your failures, you can do this. And not because of anything of yourself, but because the Spirit of God indwells within you the same spirit that indwelled the eternal son who became man is the same spirit that indwells you. Saints, throughout this whole letter, John has been giving us assurance after assurance that we can live out our Christian faith. And those words of John in chapter 13, verses 12 and 14, is the same words that I have for you this morning in light of this wonderful and glorious series that you can do this that you can have assurance john says in chapter 13 or verse 13 chapter of chapter 5 i write these things to you who believe and then i write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of god that you may have eternal life what is eternal life friends is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live as you believe in Jesus Christ, like you believe in Jesus Christ, or simply put, believe and think like a Christian and act and behave like a Christian. And that only happens by a distinct faith, a distinct life, and a distinct love. Let's pray.